Hello, David. Hey. How's it going? I'm feeling a little sick today, um, and I had to walk. Well, for those who don't know where CKOT is located, it's uh, right next to a giant football stadium. Correct. So the sports uh, bring out a different crowd, Sam. Yes. I, I understand that the world of comic books brings a lot of negative people together sometimes, but uh, this is just a different level of fear for my safety. Yeah. I'm not necessarily going to defend the football crowd exactly, but if you actually listen very closely, dear listener, you might be able to hear the announcer from the Montreal Alouettes Stadium uh, yelling uh, for a first down. It's so intense. Anyway. It is, Mr. Zinman. All that that is to say... We are back after two or three weeks, depending on how quick we are on uh, putting out this episode. Yeah, we should we should probably apologize to people for... Uh, or should we? I mean, like, we don't get paid for this. We don't get paid. Yeah, it's this weird obligation thing. I'm not entirely sure, well, but... It's our decision. Yeah, no, that's true. I, but, I mean, we did try and go to a weekly format, and we're going to probably go back to that soon. I guess we just needed some time to put together a few interviews, which actually are pretty exciting to talk about. Yeah, there's some good. I mean, I mean, we're working on a bunch of uh, of different episodes right now. The one that will be coming out very shortly is our an- one year anniversary spectacular. So yes, keep that your, is the actual full title. <laughs> keep your eyes peeled for. Or I mean, keep your podcast feeds constantly refreshing in anticipation. Uh, for people at home, please automatically download Trafe Podcast. Uh, give it a good rating on iTunes. All those things. Our, we, we have a very exciting interview today. What a seg! What a seg! With an author of a book that we both uh, really enjoyed. Most certainly. His name is Kenyon Zimmer, the author of the recently published University of Illinois Press book, Immigrants Against the State, Yiddish and Italian Anarchism in America. And he was kind enough to talk to us on the telephone last week. As you might guess, we spoke more about the Yiddish anarchists than the Italian anarchists. And that is actually the second time I've made that joke, David. Apologies to our Italian <laughs> listeners. Kenyon was really nice. I'm sure if you reached out by email, he'd be willing to talk to you about it for your radical leftist italian podcast <laughs> but um we talked about his book and some of the ideas that come up around the kind of network and community of yiddish speaking anarchists in northeast united states and we also talked about some of the reasons for decline and why we no longer see yiddish anarchist papers with publication runs of thirty thousand. so enjoy the interview So usually we start off the interviews by just letting you tell us a bit about who you are, like just kind of tell folks your name and then jump into a bit about you. Do you feel comfortable starting things off that way? Sure. So my name is Kenyon Zimmer. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of Texas at Arlington, where I teach and research transatlantic labor history and migration. So we've invited you on to talk about your your new book. Uh, It's called, I mean, I don't have to tell you that, but for the people who are listening, it's called Immigrants Against the State, Yiddish and Italian Anarchism in America. We're going to be talking more about the Yiddish side of uh, the book, if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) I guess the kind of origin question I'd like to ask is what led you to this topic? What has brought you to writing a book about uh, immigrant anarchists in the U.S. at the turn of the 20th century? Well, I sort of came of age at that moment when there was this thing called the anti-globalization movement happening with demonstrations against globalizing neoliberalism, against the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the World Trade Organization, and such. 
that all happened right when I was an undergraduate in college, which got me very interested in some of the politics and the history of the politics involved, which led me to uh, an interest in anarchism specifically. And as I began to delve into that, declare myself a history major and so on, started applying to graduate school, I realized that if I was actually interested in the history of this movement, particularly in the United States, it was really a history of immigrants, and in particular, by the turn of the 20th century, of Italian and Jewish immigrants. And that sort of sent me down the path to becoming as much of a historian of immigration, and particularly those two immigrant groups, as a historian of this particular political movement. One thing for me, like just growing up around a similar time with the anti-globalization movement, is that it seemed like a particular time where there wasn't a lot of intergenerational dialogue, and there was a bit of a break before that movement rose to prominence. And in doing your research, were you able to actually find people who were engaged in that dialogue of carrying on that political orientation and tradition? Uh, they were there, few and far between. You could say it's sort of a small cadre of aging and very isolated immigrant anarchists who bridged the gap between the teens, the 20s, the 30s, and the resurgence of, of interest in anarchism that began in the 1980s and 1990s. By the time I was actually active and engaged, that generation was almost all gone. I did have the opportunity to talk to a couple of, by then, very, very old veterans of the movement who began their activism in the 1930s. But the interest in anarchism then emerged in the 80s and 90s through things like punk rock and after the fall of the Soviet Union was, you know, very, very different than the old uh, working-class immigrant anarchist movements uh, of the early 20th century. So even though there were some, some people there to help pass the torch, what emerged in the 80s and 90s for the anti-globalization movement really was kind of a reinvention more than a direct continuation. Like one overlap that did seem present to me as someone who came of age around that time and was uh, involved in, in a particular form of punk rock that was anarchist and had anarchist aspirations was the element of an intentional counterculture, a sort of DIY culture that was definitely present in, in terms of reading your work with the anarchist movement around that time. And I, I'm wondering if you see that same connection or if you can maybe just talk to people who are unfamiliar a bit about the role that producing their own culture played for the Yiddish anarchists. Yeah, I mean, as, as you said, in the case of what I was looking at, this Yiddish-speaking, secular, working-class counterculture in places like near Lower East Side, it was absolutely essential and foundational for the movement existing, particularly for a movement like anarchism, which tended to frown upon formal organizations, obviously particularly hierarchical ones, was much more based on informal networks and alliances. So building up a counterculture, building up not just political but cultural institutions was uh, absolutely essential. Of course, the sort of counterculture that they created in the, in the Lower East Side in 1900 was worlds away from the punk rock subculture of the 80s and 90s. Um, I mean, one of the most obvious aspects of that was the language of that culture, which was Yiddish. Yeah, and I mean, I'm probably the least educated on punk rock in of the three of us, but I do think there are some punk bands at, at present who do sing some Yiddish songs, no? 
Yeah, there's there's been a sort of Yiddish re- revival in the last couple of decades, and there's definitely some overlap there. But that's that's again, it, it's a. Uh... I know this was this was mostly a joke, but um, <laughs> uh, more seriously, I was wondering if you could maybe touch a little bit more on this counterculture that's created. We have like restaurants, lending libraries, uh, alternative schools, summer camps. Is there one thing, I mean, it doesn't have to be the most significant, but like one instance of these kind of alternative culture buildings that has stood out to you in your research? Yeah, so one of the most interesting aspects of the the Yiddish anarchists in particular and of their main newspaper published out of New York, the Freie Arbeiterstimme, the Free Voice of Labor, was that it was actually an incredibly important cultural modernist outlook for the Jewish community and the Jewish intelligentsia as a whole. Um, so you have this, you know, avowedly anarchist communist newspaper that is publishing Yiddish translations of anarchist writers like Kropotkin and Malatesta, right, very consistently forthrightly anarchist, and then it is on the cutting edge of modern Yiddish poetry, and it's discovering new talent who goes on to become very important. There's a whole raft of, you know, now famous and still remembered Yiddish poets who first publish in the anarchist newspaper, and that's how they get discovered. You have literary criticism, you have reviews of theater, you have short stories being published. So this culture, it was not so isolated and cut off and insular as we might expect or we might think of as something more modern like, say, punk. It was actually sort of this very thriving intellectual center of American Jewish Yiddish art and thought in general. Yeah, could you just speak a little bit to the the numbers or the kind of print run that this paper had? Because it's really significant. And for people who don't know, it's astonishing that this is not more part of our understanding of where Eastern European Jews came from in North America. Yeah, sure. So the Freier Arbeiterstimme is the main Yiddish anarchist paper. It doesn't, there's no real rival to it in the U.S. It's founded in the 1890s. It runs all the way until the 1970s. But at its height, right before World War One, it reaches a circulation of 30,000 copies per issue in 1914, which actually makes it very likely the most widely circulated anarchist publication in all of American history. Now, to put that in perspective, the Yiddish Daily Forward, the Forverts, reached its peak uh, circulation at about a quarter million, right, significantly larger. But if you sort of backtrack in time a little bit, in the first decade of the 20th century, the anarchist newspaper had about a third of the circulation of not just the main socialist paper in Yiddish, but the main newspaper in Yiddish, which was the Forwards. So it had a good chunk of Yiddish readership. I'm not sure if this is something that's that you've come across in your research, but we're based in Montreal, and, and David's from Toronto, and it always mm-hmm. seems like we get references to a socialist history or even a history on on the left related to the communist party but the anarchist history is it feels like it's more marginal maybe that that story hasn't been written and maybe we're talking to the wrong people i mean my first instinct reading your work and and understanding a little bit of this history is that the immigration to the big cities in canada happened about probably 10 or 20 or 30 years later do you feel like there's mm-hmm. a the time element really is why we don't see such a large history of yiddish anarchism in canada well, there there were Yiddish anarchists in Canada, especially in Toronto and Montreal, actually. 
the groups they formed, most of them were members of the Jewish Anarchist Federation of the United States and Canada, which was sort of spearheaded by one of the editors of the Fire Arbiter Stimme in the 1920s. So I think they may be sort of marginal or marginalized in histories of the Canadian left because they weren't particularly Canadian or, or tied to Canadian territory because they were very much cross-border institutions, right? You had Jewish radicals who moved back and forth across the border over the course of their lives or who, you know, crossed the border, say, to Detroit to go to a Yiddish anarchist event and then went back across the border that night. And these Canadian Yiddish anarchist groups are sort of very much extensions of or maybe even outposts of the more U.S.-based networks centered around New York and uh, Philadelphia and Detroit. Uh, they are there, but no one, including myself, has really delved too much into that history. But one, one could leaf through the pages of the, the Freier Arbeitsstimme over the decades and find letters and announcements of events from those groups in Canada, just like you'll find letters and announcements from Yiddish anarchist groups in uh, you know, South Africa or in, in Palestine or in London. Uh, there's a lot there waiting to be found, and there's not a lot of people with the correct skill set, particularly in languages, who are looking at sources like the Freyarbitishtina. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a decent chance that uh, half those people may be listening out of the 10. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is a public appeal, I guess. One other point that I you, you just mentioned it a little bit about how the fluidity of borders, the U.S.-Canadian borders, one of the things that you write about is how the narrative of the good migrant really won over in erasing how uh, Yiddish-speaking anarchists in North America were going back and forth, uh, that it wasn't simply you come from Eastern Europe and you stay in North America, but that there was a lot more movement, and it kind of problematizes our understanding of all Eastern European Jews coming here as refugees and kind of going on this very clear linear path towards whiteness and citizenship in the U.S. Could you speak to that a little bit? The, yeah, the history of immigrant anarchism in general and of Jewish anarchists in particular definitely problematizes most of what most Americans think they know about American immigration history. First off, although this movement gets to be quite large, especially in cities like New York, tens of thousands of activists and sympathizers, Contrary to the myth of the radical Eastern European Jew or radical Russian who comes to the U.S. and sort of brings their ideas with them, turns out most of these immigrant anarchists were not anarchists in the old country. A lot of them were socialists or involved with or sympathized with the revolutionary movement in Russia, but a lot of them had never even heard the term anarchism before arriving in the United States. And this includes some very prominent figures like Emma Goldman, Alexander Berkman. They really discover these ideas in the United States. And their experiences, their very disillusioning experiences, you know, with sweatshops and tenement houses and slums and discrimination, then anarchism makes sense to them in the American context, which obviously goes against the story of fleeing persecution for freedom in the United States. One little anecdote I, I like to use PBS, the uh, public broadcasting system in the United States, did a special documentary on the Golden Gate Bridge. And one of the engineers was a Latvian Jewish immigrant named Leon Moiseev, who also designed the Manhattan Bridge. And in his little biography on the PBS website, they say, Moiseev so loved the United States that he named his first daughter Liberty. Turns out, yes, he did name his first daughter Liberty, 
but not because he loved the United States, but because he came to the United States, became an anarchist in the United States, and in that context, when his daughter was born in the 1890s, he named her Liberty as really an indictment of the lack of freedoms that he found in the United States and as a reference to the true liberty that he saw being offered in anarchist thought. He was actually, had just finished editing a Yiddish anarchist magazine a couple of years before that daughter was born. Huh. So you, you have that element. And then, yeah, you do have return migration. Um, now, Jewish immigrants in the U.S. and I believe in Canada as well have one of the lowest rates of return migration to their country of origin. Um, but there were exceptions, and one of the very significant exceptions that's really talked about is after the February Revolution in 1917, when the Tsar is overthrown in Russia, you have, and the numbers are somewhat unclear, but hundreds and probably thousands of Russian-born Jews who return, who eagerly return to post-Tsarist Russia in the tumultuous, especially months between the February Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution, because they're, you know, they're going to go take part in the revolutionary process. Some of these returned Jewish radicals, socialist anarchists of all stripes, take very prominent and important roles in the October Revolution, in the Red Army, in the Russian Civil War, in helping to revive a pretty weak and flimsy Russian anarchist movement before it's really stamped out as the Bolsheviks consolidate their control in the early 20s. But yeah, you have boatloads full of these Russian Jews eagerly returning. And then they're followed by a couple boatloads of Russian Jews who are being deported to post-war First Red Scare. People like Emma Goldman and Berkman, who then get thrown into the same mix of things. Um, so I, I want to talk about how we got from that picture to the institutional Jewish politics that exist today. A lot of listeners have probably watched the documentary put out by AK or distributed now by AK Press that documents Paul Average, you know, doing research on the Freiburger Stimme closing. And, and, and something mm-hmm. it, for me, just watching that and reading reading some of Paul Average's work, is that it left me with a sort of blurry picture of the decline of this movement. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that period. Sure. So there's a number of crises that beset immigrant anarchism and Jewish anarchism in particular, beginning with World War One. Although most anarchists, both in the U.S. and abroad, are firm anti-militarists and they condemn both sides in that war. The then editor of the Friar Arvidishtima, Saul Yanovsky, this real tribune of Yiddish anarchism, the one who really turned that newspaper into this publication of real significance in the Jewish community in general, after the February Revolution, he, much to the shock and horror of many of his comrades, comes out in favor of supporting the Allies in the battle against the German Empire. He argues a victory for the Allies would be far preferable for the populace of Europe than a German victory. This is hugely controversial. He's getting essentially kicked out of his position as editor in 1919. The Friar Arbitish never recovers the same popularity and influence and circulation that it had. Um, then the Bolshevik Revolution occurs, and there's further splits where some Yiddish anarchists embrace either temporarily or permanently Russian communism, the Communist Party that's formed in the United States. And the emergence of communism and the Communist Party becomes a huge 
flashpoint in the Jewish labor movement in general, in the garment unions where anarchists have an important place. For the 20s and 30s, anarchists and socialists are fighting against communists. There's an enormous amount of energy and resources thrown into that fight, which really you know, diminished the greater potential of the Jewish labor movement in those years. Then, of course, going into the 30s, you have the trickling off of transatlantic migration, particularly because of new restrictive immigration legislation in the United States that intentionally discriminates against Southern and Eastern Europeans to reduce their numbers. So that creates a real problem because you have this Yiddish anarchist movement that has spent decades building up these institutions, all based very firmly in this Yiddish-Jewish counterculture. But once mass migration ends, you're no longer essentially getting the population of Yiddish speakers replenished. Instead, the resident population of Yiddish speakers is getting older, and their children are growing up in the United States speaking English, often not being able to speak or especially read Yiddish, for whom this whole institutional structure that has allowed the movement to grow and thrive for decades is alien and irrelevant. You know, just speaking about that change in migration policy, and uh, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about the immigration regime within the United States that even allowed these migrants to arrive in the United States and how that compares with migration policy going on today. So if you were an immigrant from Europe, particularly before 1903 coming to the United States, there was virtually no limit or barrier to your entering. Um, it was essentially an open-door policy. 1903, this is particularly important for the case of anarchists, the 1903 Immigration Act starts to add on to the list of excludable classes, which previously had mostly been concerned with Asian immigrants, especially the Chinese. But in 1903, anarchists are added to the list of excludable classes, along with people with developmental disorders, disabilities, polygamists, some other undesirable, quote-unquote, categories. But anarchists are put there because two years earlier, in 1901, the anarchist Leon Cholgosh had assassinated the president of the United States. Even though Cholgosh was the American-born son of immigrants, that didn't seem to matter to legislators. So basically, beginning in 1903, you can be barred from entry if you're an anarchist. And you can be deported if you're discovered to have been an anarchist when you entered, for, I think it's a period of up to five years. But that law is virtually impossible to enforce at the time, right? Basically, someone on Ellis Island asks, are you an anarchist? You say no. How are they going to, you know, prove? They can't look at your Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Until 1917, 1918, 1919, when changes are made that do away with the probationary period. So basically, if at any time any immigrant becomes an anarchist, they can be deported from the United States. And that's what allows for the mass deportations of first red scares, the deportations of people like Goldman and Berkman. But these are all, again, these are all under a regime where immigration restriction is based on excludable classes. What changes in the 20s is quotas, these numerical caps, which are a new invention in American immigration law. And you have this convoluted formula used to, to calculate each sending country's maximum quota for immigrants to the United States per year. And it's a system that very intentionally minimizes the allowable number of immigrants from places like Italy and Russia and maximizes the allowable number from more Anglo-Saxon countries like England or Germany. 
it essentially reduces Jewish and Italian immigration to a mere trickle, to several thousands a year are allowable. And the, the system of quotas, numerical quotas, although it, it's been substantially changed in the 60s, is still what governs U.S. immigration. It's a, it's a regime of number, and if you don't abide by that regime, that gives rise to the phenomenon of illegal immigration, not because those migrants have qualities about them that are deemed undesirable, but because they are in excess of this arbitrarily determined numerical cap. So in some ways, the origins of today's political impasse over immigration and the arbitrary deportation and exclusion regime in the U.S. based on these camps has its origins in the 1920s. When you talked about the decline of the Yiddish anarchist counterculture and and movement more broadly, I was wondering, this maybe happens a little bit later, it happens more post-war or post-Second World War, but the kind of whiteness, racialization towards whiteness, ascension into the middle class, it would be too simplistic probably because I'm sure there were people who came from a particular class background that wasn't working class who were part of the Yiddish anarchist movement. But how do you feel that impacted numbers? Or do you think that's just one of a variety of factors? Class mobility? Class and then like racial – I mean the way that race and class are and, and, tied right, up. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, so economic mobility and being accepted as fully white and, and the decline of anti-Semitism in the U.S., particularly after World War II, certainly those play a part, right? It, along with things like immigration restriction, vastly shrinks the pool of individuals who are dissatisfied with their life in America and might therefore then turn to something like anarchism if the opportunity presents itself. But really, by that time, other factors had already struck tremendous blows. Immigration restriction, the rise of communism, and sort of the dominance of communism amongst the left, including very much the Jewish-American left, were more important in the, in the short term. In the long term, of course, economic mobility, in addition to that loss of language and culture in the second and third generations, yeah, I mean, that, that really is going to help spell the end there. In terms of race and whiteness, it's interesting because the Yiddish anarchists were, were very interested and concerned with, with the question of what actually makes someone a Jew, in particular because they were almost universally atheists, yet still very much identified as Jews. So right, how do you define who is Jewish without invoking Judaism? It was something they wrote about quite a lot, and essentially they argue that it's a cultural definition, that Jews are Jews of Yiddishkeit, of their Yiddishness. Right? It's their language, the, the modern Yiddish mm. but secular culture of literature and poetry and, and plays, and that's what really defines you as Yiddish, which also means they're not invoking race. They're not invoking the idea of a Jewish race or a Semitic race, which very much unintentionally helps smooth the way for something like, yeah, Jews, they're an ethnic group, it's a cultural thing, but racially they're white. Yeah, you, you talk about how someone wrote in the, in the Freie Arbeiterstamme about this idea of folk, like peoplehood, right? As opposed to race or religion. Yeah. And I guess it's, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, it's so appealing, that, that argument. But then on the other hand, I feel like it, it does a certain centering of a European Jewish identity as opposed to other kinds of Jewish identities. Um, I mean, like, again, not yeah. faulting them. Yeah. They're 150 years old. But I mean, just talking about it with our current lens. I wonder, I mean, like, have you thought about the application of this framework for Jewish peoplehood today in any way? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it wouldn't make any sense today. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely, it's all about Ashkenazi Jewry and Yiddish 
Right, which again, even their own children, by that definition, wouldn't really be Jewish mm. um, anymore, since so much of that is lost through the lack of language acquisition. And then, of course, yeah, other groups of Jews, it's a huge problem. And then, of course, fast forward to today, where Yiddish is hardly a living language at all anymore. It's a completely unusable definition. Mm. Um, of of what a folk is, and and ironically, this actually sort of vindicates some of the anarchists' critiques of the nationalism of their day, because they were very attentive and aware of the fact that things like language and culture change and are not primordial, and they borrow from each other, and they use they pointed these sorts of things out in order to argue against nationalism and national borders. So they were very much aware. Even if they weren't necessarily aware of the implications of the argument, at the same time, they were arguing that things like language and culture defined groups of people, defined nations, if you want to call them that, but that these were arbitrary historically and socially constructed and could change over time. And they therefore argued that's why nation-states are this ridiculous thing, because you can't just draw borders around things with, that have fluid borders and things that change over time. So could you talk a little bit about how uh, this history of this network of Yiddish anarchists with diff- like the different spaces they created in North America and how that's been ignored by the dominant American Jewish history and broader imagination? I think actually a lot of it has to do with people projecting the present back on the past. You can see this in the written record at times. Um, if you go back to, say, stuff written in the 1920s, 1930s, in Yiddish, sort of histories of the Jewish labor movement in the U.S. and Europe, you'll find a lot more about Yiddish anarchism than you find later. And there's a sort of process of attrition as later scholars, first in Yiddish and then working with Yiddish documents but writing in English, begin to sort of drop out most of the details about the Yiddish anarchists. They become a much smaller part over time. Mm. And sort of with each iteration of historical scholarship, including popular scholarship like Irving Howe's uh, World of Our Fathers, there's less and less there. And what is there is more and more confined to this moment in the 1890s mm. when Yiddish anarchists were um, very much undeniably the most influential factor in the Jewish-American left. But then, over time, it becomes more and more, well, and then they kind of disappear after but if you go back and read stuff written in the 1920s in Yiddish, they're talking about anarchists very much because they're still there. Mm. A, a huge part of this, right, is the rise of Jewish socialism, the rise of the, the forwards, people like Abe Gahan, who sort of eclipses this entire movement and definitely, you know, undoubtedly surpasses it many times over um, in terms of membership and, and influence over the first couple decades of the 20th century. But what gets lost is the fact that while... Right, the circulation of the forwards is skyrocketing, and the influence of uh, Jewish socialists, who you know, who eventually elect a couple of members of Congress and whatnot. Well, while that's happening, the Yiddish anarchist movement isn't disappearing; it's actually growing too, at least up through the First World War, but just not at the same geometric rate as Jewish socialism. So it becomes sort of this victim falling in the shadow of this larger Jewish social democratic tradition, which dominates not just the political spectrum of the Jewish left, but then later dominates the viewpoint of a lot of the scholarship that's done on the history of the Jewish labor movement. And then 
similarly, later developments, particularly the founding of Israel, the growth of Zionism, the anarchist movement very much, with a couple of eclectic exceptions, does not fit into that narrative. Um, <laughs> no, it does not. Although some people yeah. do try to circle that square, but that's a <laughs> yeah, different yeah, discussion. Yeah, some do. And, 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 and the, the tradition of trying to circle the square is, is pretty old as well, and I write about that. But this notion that American Jews have always been Zionists, and that the Jewish labor movement and Jewish left have always been evolving toward a pro-Jewish nationalist Zionist position, is very much implicit in a lot of the literature, right? There's this trajectory that's painted, sort of starting off on this naive cosmopolitan viewpoint that then naturally and inevitably involves towards some sort of Bundist or Zionist Jewish nationalist leftism, which doesn't leave space for talking about the anarchists who were, by and large, especially before the Holocaust and the actual founding of a state of Israel, overwhelmingly opposed to such notions. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, where could folks check out your work? I mean, I guess they go on Amazon.com or wherever the book publisher is. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. If you don't want to feed the Leviathan, you can order it through AK Press or oh. directly from University of Illinois Press. Great. And um, I mean, anything you're working on now that you'd like to share? Uh, my next book project I'm working on is going into a lot more depth on one element of this, and that is the deportations of the first Red Scare. I'm working on a collective biography of the American radicals, including a number of Jewish radicals who were deported from the U.S. Uh, in the years after World War One. Hmm. So like... Well, the, the big names everyone knows are Alexander Berkman and Emma Goldman. Yeah. Uh, but they were deported on a ship along with 247 other Russian-born radicals uh, who no one up to now really knows much about. And then there's smaller contingents of Russians and Scandinavians and Mexicans and these other groups. Um, so I'm trying to get at who actually were these people and what impacts did they then have on the countries to which they were deported. Uh, so I'm sort of looking at the deportations of the Red Scare not as the end of the story of these radicals, but really a beginning point to then trace them out into the wider world. Huh. Well, I, I look forward to reading it. Uh, yeah, I look forward to hopefully writing it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have some time between now and then. Yes, yes. Great. Um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm happy to. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. David, what's your middle name? Elias. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Elias Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record the podcast under the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Please follow us on all the social medias at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, and please give us a positive rating on iTunes. Uh, thanks to Zach Syndrome for the music that you heard in the episode, and as always to Kira Page uh, for the social media consultancy, Cadence O'Neill for our brand new website at trafepodcast.com, and Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design. See you soon.